Rise Southern Biscuits and Righteous Chicken started out in 2012 and now has 16 locations in seven states. But the fast casual concept has gone through many changes in those years. The concept started out as Rise Biscuits and Donuts, but in 2017, founder and CEO Tom Ferguson took a hard look at his brand. After seeing some franchisees fail, he realized the menu was simply too complex to scale. So Rise stopped making donuts in-house and focused on higher-ticket biscuit sandwiches, which would prove popular for breakfast and lunch. And the restaurant has integrated technology into its model, moving to a kiosk-based ordering system for in-house orders. This model cut labor costs and is boosting order accuracy and throughput. Tune in to the latest episode of the Buzzworthy Brands podcast to hear more from Rise's Tom Ferguson. Hey, well, thanks so much for joining me today on the Buzzworthy Brands podcast. Can you just uh, start off and introduce yourself and then tell me a little bit about this concept? Yeah, I'm Tom Ferguson founder and CEO of Rise Southern Biscuits and Righteous Chicken. And we're a quick service restaurant that specializes in biscuit sandwiches. We're in seven states, so 16 locations, three corporate stores and 13 franchises. Very good. And can you tell me a little bit about how this concept got started and, and what the, the evolution has been? Yeah, we started back in 2012. I'd started several restaurants before in a catering company and really wanted to do a biscuit concept using better ingredients, uh, cleaner products, and chef-driven. So when we first started, we were really chef-driven. Lots of braised meats were put on it, lots of uh, chef-y flavors to our donuts and to a lot of the sides that we did. But as we started franchising, it was a little too complex to really scale. So after we had opened some stores and had some stores fail, um, I went back into the brand and reevaluated what we were doing and started simplifying things. And this process started back in 2017. And that took about a year to kind of hone it, to deconstruct what Rise was and then to start building it back up. And we started building it back up, deliveries started to look like it was going to be a big thing for the future. So we partnered with some companies to make that work more streamlined so that third-party delivery you know, apps that were there would integrate into our POS system so that we'd be able to uh, fulfill the orders simply, simpler. So that took about a year for that to all get integrated in our system. And we got everything in place February before the virus hit. So we were wow, good, good timing. Yeah, we were very fortunate with timing because we didn't take that bad of a hit during the virus. There was like five weeks that our sales dropped down right around 40%, but then it picked back up and now our sales are way 25 to 35% greater than they were pre-virus. Wow, that's outstanding. Even bigger than that is the streamlining that we had done prior to that launch of the our new, the way that delivery was integrated and then the changes we made when the virus happened our profits up like three four hundred percent so the virus was really good to us as far as the company we were very fortunate for the way things played out we 
I don't know how much you want me to talk. Yeah. About. Can you can you talk a little in some more detail about that streamlining? What kinds of things did you take off the menu or maybe add to the menu and why? More was like an emphasis of what we did. When we first opened, we were called Rides, Biscuits, and Donuts. And donuts is very challenging to do from scratch, and we're not doing them from scratch anymore. But more importantly, it was the emphasis of what our company was. People would come to us thinking we're a donut place, so they wouldn't think about eating there after 11 o'clock. Um, once we rebranded to Rice Southern Biscuits and Rice's Chicken, we really pushed the lunch type of things that we do too. So that helps our balance more. We're only open seven to two, but it keeps the sales pretty balanced throughout the day. Where before we would do at least two thirds of our business before 11 o'clock. We're now it's almost 50-50 from seven to 10.30 and 10.30 to two. Sure, so that, that makes sense. Part of how people perceived us as a restaurant and what times they would eat there. Um, the other part is just the way the service model works. So in the beginning, we had two cashiers, and with two cashiers, it takes about a minute and a half to put an order in. So a minute, every 45 seconds, a new order would come to the back during busy times. And we could keep up that flow of business. We could you know, fulfill those orders in that same pace, right, and, and hand it out at the same pace. But then when you start looking into doing your online ordering, which we do now, or doing the delivery platforms, and we got rid of the cashier and just went to kiosk order. So orders were put in through a kiosk, through our website for online, and then through the delivery platforms. So you have all these orders coming in from different ways that you can get slammed at this particular point. Some of the things you can adjust, third-party delivery, you can only turn on and off. Online orders, you can set it to how many orders you take in a certain amount of minutes. And then we're down to one kiosk, so that only allows people to go to that order in the store so often. So we're able to fulfill those orders in a reasonable amount of time. So our speed of service got a lot better. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and when did you add the kiosks? We had the kiosks for, for years, but they weren't used very much. We had cashiers. So once we used the cashiers, then it became they had to use the kiosks. And at the beginning, when we set up kiosks, they weren't very user-friendly. And now they're, they're really easy to use. That's helped a lot, too. Did you find that switching entirely to the kiosk saved on labor or are there other benefits to it? Oh, well, there's other benefits, but yes, it saved a lot on labor. So yeah. we went from having labor costs of about uh, 27 to 30% to having labor costs at sub 20. Oh, wow. And no, no cashiers put in the wrong order. Every customer puts in the order themselves. So, the accuracy isn't really a problem, isn't blamed on us. Um, there's no, the kiosk doesn't get sassy with the customer. <laughs> it's polite. Um, so it's helped that a lot, customer service. And the one thing I was worried about when we made this switch was how we would engage with customers. But we switched that if just the person expediting the food that's handing the food out to the customer. It's a, it's a more positive interaction than somebody telling you what they want when you're giving them. So customer service satisfaction has gone up quite a bit, which is a big surprise. Yeah, that is that is kind of surprising. Um, so I heard that you uh, you are adding some uh, like pickup lockers. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah, a big part of what we did, we we were ahead of the curve when the virus hit, but then they read like we'll keep refining and keep refining it. So we really refined our operations from the expedite, that's given taking the food from the kitchen and giving it to the customer. 
And like I said, we have all these ways of ordering now. So we're actually handing food out to people who've ordered in different ways, right? For delivery drivers that are holding their phone up in your face saying, I'm here for this <laughs> to um, people who order online. That you never saw in the store until they're getting their food to the people who put it on the kiosk. So you had to really refine and kind of make that system work the same for everybody. So what we did is we added a screen, a TV screen that tells you if your order is being prepared or if your order is ready. Because one of the problems everybody walk in and go right up says an order ready. You'd have to look to see if the bags, any of those were theirs. And then say, no, yours isn't ready yet. Well, how long? And then you're looking at the screen. It was a lot of uh, wasted time from our standpoint. So we put the screen up, says if your order is being prepared or if it's ready. So then they know to come up. That was the first step. And then we added food lockers, uh, heated food lockers in our corporate stores. So they have 12 stalls. We put in the food. We punch in their name. They come in, see their foods ready on the screen, go to the locker, see their name, press their name, press one to confirm. That locker lights up, winks. They open the locker and take their food. So it's a really smooth system now, and it's, it's been great. Customers like it. Delivery drivers love it. We like it. I would imagine. Yeah. Did you say that was just at the corporate stores right now? Or? Yes. We put in one in one store in January, and then we put them in the, our other two corporate stores in March. And just and our sales are just going up, up, up. We're also kind of in a busier season for us, but it's going up higher than going up faster than the business. So if you take the stores that have the food lockers in them, their sales are going up at a higher rate than the other stores. So are franchisees taking a look at that too? They are. And I have similar, you know, what I've tried to do, we went through a lot of transition trying to get this thing figured out uh, financially. We took a lot of different directions. So I'm really patient with trying to guide them and just show them financially how it helps. So right now we have multiple stores moving in our direction. Food lockers are about $18,000. That's a big buy. For them. That is. But there's a couple of different levels down below they can get their stuff. We put in one of our stores, these radiated heated shelves that we put it, that's still self-service for the delivery drivers. Kind of like what you see in Panera Bread where they just have shelves and they have your order there. Mm-hmm. But they keep it warm. Um, so that's one, uh, one store is doing that. Um, other stores have heat lamps where they hand it out to them themselves still. But this is showing to be so impactful that I see other franchises moving in our direction. Sure. So as you well know, there are, you know, a handful of decent sized biscuit brands out there. How, how would you say you all differentiate yourselves from, from those players? The, the biggest difference is that ours has always been put in a bag to go. So we built our model around being the hero, taking the food home to people. We have very little dining space. Some of our stores had zero seating inside or out. And we have some stores that have that were a second generation restaurant and have a lot of seating. Primarily, our brand is built for getting and going and taking somewhere else and sharing with others. And I think that's been the secret. That was hard to do as a chef. You spent all these years as a chef. You want to do a presentation, right, on a plate. So we were traveling and thinking about this. Most of the places you see that are kind of in our line better than are all sit-down places. So that's the biggest one as far as the, the service model. As far as the food goes, I think that a lot of us kind of come from the same place. A lot of the people are doing biscuit planes, places, we're chefs. And they're all trying to, we're all doing uh, good food. We keep, we use really clean products though. Um, whereas all natural, hormone free, or free range, whatever. We're using products that are better than what you typically see. And then 
the way we prepare them are more classical. Uh, crispy bacon instead of rubbery bacon or country ham that has no nitrates in it. Um, sausage that's patted up and cooked perfect. With, a lot of it has to do with those cooking techniques. Mm -hmm. The size of the portion is a little bit bigger. It's a bigger biscuit than you'll see in some of the biscuit places. And ours is, ours just has really bite. You'll see a lot of these places will have maybe a harder type biscuit, which is kind of what I grew up in in Texas. You know, Texas, I don't know if you know the history of biscuits, but they were cooked off and taken on the, uh, on the cattle drives. And oh. they were great. And then they made gravy and poured over it to soften up the biscuit. So I grew up on biscuits and gravy with that type of harder type biscuit. In North Carolina, when I came here, you see one that's more works for a sandwich better. It doesn't crumble. The poles is a little bit lighter and fluffier. And I think it, also the fact that we have sweet things. We have uh, three items that are on our menu that are made with the biscuit dough. We have a cinnamon roll that's made with the biscuit dough, a blueberry biscuit. Um, and beignets that we do with the biscuit dough. Yes. Do you have any biscuit making secrets? You know, there's no real secret. I mean, if you, the five ingredients, it's uh, self-rising soft wheat flour, uh, sugar, eggs, buttermilk, and butter. Mix those together right, bake and be able to do it day in, day out, seven hours <laughs> with different people in different states, then hey, you deserve the money you make. That, that is the trick, right? So yeah. uh, I uh, very briefly worked in a, in a bakery here in Chicago, and I, I know how hard it is uh, to replicate those types of, of things, you know, shift after shift, and uh, the pie dough was different if somebody else was, was making it. So how do you do that as you scale up and as you add franchisees? What does the training look like, and, and how are you, you know, sort of instilling those values in everybody? You know, well, we have uh, posters that show you that have like a, a little chart that helps you know if your biscuit's in the right zone, what we're looking for, right color, right height. Um, we also have training videos, and we also go in the stores and train them at the beginning. I just got off the road for two weeks traveling around some of the out-of-state stores, and I do that visit every store every year, and I'm seeing really consistent biscuits across the, across the brand. That's not an issue at all. And there's just little tweaks on the food. I believe we have the training down. We use a video program called PlayerLink where we'll put in a video of how to, um, and they have it in all their stores and they use it like a recipe book. So that's really helpful. We also have a dashboard that's kind of like a blog almost. It has uh, links to all the third-party links that we use for stuff, whether it's our POS system or QuickBooks or Trello. And then a lot of ins you know, uh, specific corporate documentations are in there, but there's also a blog in that that's the main part of the page where if we're going to change a product or we're going to introduce a new product, we put it there and talk to everybody about it. So that's how we communicate with everyone. And everything that we do, we beta test out of our corporate stores first before we launch them out to the franchisees. Good. Um, so with with the pandemic, can you can you talk about sort of what that has done to your growth plans or to stores that were in the pipeline? What what's the next year or two going to look like? Well, we closed down franchise sales while I was tweaking out this brand. So pretty much, we we sold we opened it back up right in February when we launched everything out. When it didn't work, when I knew it was kind of working at that point, but we had closed it for the two and a half years prior. 
And that was really just get a handle on it, really have a strong ROI and try to work on that. And we, I don't know if you're familiar with prime cost, but your combined cost of labor and cost of goods. We'd always been shooting to try to hit 55%, but we were really sitting around 60 plus, you know, in some stores. Right now we're doing sub 50s. Oh, nice. Corporate stores and 52 in one of my stores. Um, I have most of my franchises, really all but maybe two, are 55 or better. So what we've done with the prime cost up to that point, that all those things were in play before the virus happened. So we have been working on that for a long time to get to that point. But with the virus, we were even able to shed stuff down really to get to these sub 50 numbers. That's great. And are you, are you looking at adding new units or are you still kind of working on this? Form? Yeah, we are. We're actually actively for corporate. We have LOIs out for two new places. We have a friend for a manager of one of my stores who's worked for me for 10 years in multiple restaurants that I've had. She's getting ready to be a franchisee. And then we have a store that's getting ready to open in California, Thousand Oaks. We're not getting ready to open. You just signed the lease. And then we have other franchises that are looking on doing uh, more stores. And then we have people online ready to do some discovery days and see if they want to get on board. So our, our growth looks really strong right now. Great. I, are you I, don't, noticing... I, want to, I want to make sure I'm emphasizing the fact that it was really rough in the beginning and figuring this out from someone who comes from where I come from, kind of a chefy guy, trying to figure out this franchise game took some time. I, I would imagine. Is there anything that sort of helped you on that path or was it trial and error? I'm um, finding a hobby helped me an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> Worked a hobby my whole life and really that kind of gave me a nervous breakdown. Went to a doctor, gave me a pill and he said, get a hobby. So, I so what, ho- what hobby did you find? Bird watching. I love oh, nice. birds. So that's been really helpful in balancing it. And that balance really brought more empathy for what my employees were going through which made me think about adjustments in a different light and also really emphasize the culture of our business to be in the importance of that is really at the forefront of what I do every day. That's fascinating. So what are some of the things you put in place to um, kind of instill that and nurture that culture? A loving and empathetic environment. Uh, one where we talk with managers more than what are your numbers? More like, hey, what's going on in your life? What do you want to be? So we kind of look at our employees in four different groups. One's employee doesn't need to work there. They don't like it. It's not good for them or us. Or something, there's somebody who likes working in one position. Maybe they love just doing biscuits. They don't really care to do other stuff. Well, that's fine. We, we love you too. And then we have people who want to move up in the company and giving them opportunities. All three of my managers started out as employees in Rises. And then, like I said, one of them's getting ready to be a franchisee. So really showing them, improving to the employees and start building the culture around, you can move up here if you want to. And the third one is we have a lot of employees who have dreams outside of what rises. And we want to encourage them and, and talk to them about what they want to do and, and help them find their way. And I think that kind of openness and that talking and caring and empathy spills over into everything else that we do too. So not just for me, it may be me talking to managers about this or franchisees, but for managers, just talking to their employees about these same type of things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you it is not for nothing that you kind of shut the train down and decided to, to rework 
things in a, in a better format. Can you talk about sort of what led up to that moment where you were like, we need to think about how things are going here? Yeah, it was, you know, I've, I, in my past, and other restaurants I did, my catering company, I could show one or two people how to do something and show that they did it right and how to really sell a product. But in this case, I wouldn't have that much time with someone and we show them to do it right, but over time it evolves into what's not right. And from afar, you would get excuses for why it didn't work or reasons why, however you want to look at it. And it was just the complexity of it was really hard to pull out, pull off at that point. And I, you know, not everybody has 30 years cooking experience like I had. So it, it just was hard for them to do it. And it was coming to that realization that I wasn't able to do this in the way that I wanted to. And that I was going to have to take a fresh look at it. Um, there was the hardest thing I've ever gone through, uh, but also turned out to be a turning point in the company itself. So by doing that and then dealing with my ego, um, dealing with um, lines in the sand I had drawn, that I was able to build something that's really special and I had a lot of pride in. That's great. I, I feel like maybe not everybody would uh, have the wherewithal to kind of step back and reassess and reimagine things. It's hard. I mean, it's hard not to just say, well, let's just keep selling them. They're selling them. They look good on paper <laughs> at this point when you know something's wrong. And uh, you have to tell you know, partners in franchising or investors or franchisees, hey, we're going to do a different way. What's the hardest thing I ever had to do? Because you want them to stick with you while you're going through the transitions. Sure. I believe in you. But it's also hard for them to see that. They signed on for one thing and you had to tweak it to something that's a little bit different. Um, but now it's easy because it's working. <laughs> so, so, so now that we got through it, the ones that made it with us, um, everybody's everybody's happy with where things are right now. That's great. And you you closed some units during that transition time. Yeah, through our through our life, uh, we've opened twenty six, but closed ten. Okay. And out of those ten, I would say probably half of those were uh, site for site selections. Just not really understanding that as much um, and then the other half were operations whether it was our we were just too complex so we were going through too much change and they weren't able to make it or they decided not to continue. Um, and you mentioned menu wise that uh, you you used to be doing the donuts in house but and you're not doing that anymore I'm sorry say that again oh you mentioned menu wise that you used to be doing donuts in house but you you're not doing that. You know, we buy a product now from Riches, and we make those in-house. Back in the day, we were making things from scratch. You know, we were selling about 45% donuts, dollar-wise, and 45% biscuits and 10% beverage. Um, but what was happening is this grew, the donut consistency was all over the place for so many different reasons. And it was maddening. It was really, really maddening for me. I would go into a store and something would be wrong. And the manager would say, well, the donut guy said the equipment wasn't working right. And the manager wouldn't, wouldn't enforce that they made it right because he's worried he'd run off that donut maker who came in at 2 o'clock and <laughs> the donut maker coming in at 2 o'clock. So it was really hard for managers to enforce the quality on that. So as we took donuts out of the name and really made those a smaller amount, donuts equate anywhere from 10 to 20% of our sales now, which is fine because now the majority of our sales is on our you know, 
or product, which is what it is. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so here's the difference. Here's the difference to tell you. So one of our corporate stores back in 2017, this past week, same time frame, did $29,000 in sales. This past week, that same store did $22,000 in sales. But at $29,000 in sales, its profit was about $15,000. In this period with $22,000, I'm sorry, in a four-week period of doing $29,000, mm-hmm. so doing about $100,000, its profit was $15,000. Well, probably 18%. In this particular period where it's going to do $84,000, something like that, its profit is going to be $27,000, Wow. So it's a huge difference. And even so, accountant told me one time, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. Exactly. Pretty relevant in my business. Uh, and it's, you know, obviously the things you would do in one, if you were running one biscuit shop, it is a lot different thing than 16 biscuit shops. So it sounds like that was kind of the thing you need to figure out when you slowed things down a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's changed a lot. So I lost a little bit of my train of thought there. No, um, that's okay. What what else should we know about uh, Rise? Any other things that I'm not asking you about? I'm really committed to the kids that work for us. Extremely. I made a lot of money one time. It didn't satisfy me. Uh, I felt exactly the same way afterwards. But when I see these kids moving up through our company and giving them everything they have, I get a lot of joy from that. And I'll fight for that for the rest of my life. That's great. Good. Well, I will be interested to follow your company for the the you know years ahead and, and see how you guys grow and, and change. And I really appreciate this conversation. Oh, great. Me too. Yeah, watch this. I think we're going to make some noise. I think we're ready to um, provide an environment that this younger generation wants to be building. And I'm all for it. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, we have a wonderful day. Thank you.